0: We were running a series called Being Human some time ago, you may remember that. Um, It was put on hold about mid-November, and uh, with all the various things that have been happening since, it's time to return to the theme, the general theme of being human. And I want to pick up um, in a related theme to where we left off last time, because one of the last things I was talking about um, was singleness. And we were raising the question that if we are made as sexual beings and made to be complementary, male and female. What does that say about the unmarried? (laughs) And we looked at a number of aspects of what it might say in the Old Testament and the culture of the Old Testament. We looked at issues of contemporary culture. Um, And we explored a little bit of the issue and uh, some of the surrounding issues that are raised with it. I want to pick up on that theme this morning in a slightly different way, but a way which I think is important for us as a church to be thinking about and considering. And I want to think particularly about those who live alone, which may be folks who are unmarried, may be folks who are divorced, may be folks who are in changing circumstances, could be all kinds of situations. And I want to think about that. It obviously um, includes the whole theme of singleness. Um, The graphics come courtesy of Unilever and the... um, uh, public policy the Re- Institute of Public Policy Research, who together jointly each year undertake very major studies of what's happening in the United Kingdom, and I've nicked the graphics from their report of 2005 on this very issue. I want to begin by expressing the same caveat I expressed at the beginning last time, which was I know nothing about this subject. Um, I've never really lived alone for more than a week or two at the most. So I'm pretty well ignorant of many aspects of this, and you may want to come and help me get a better perspective on it later on, and that would be most welcome. And if there are things that I omit or things that you feel I just don't understand about this, then please do come and talk to me. Um, The more you do that, the better I understand. What I do know is that the situation in this church in Windsor is fairly typical of the situation in the community as a whole. It's actually one of the great strengths of Windsor, I think, that it actually fairly well reflects a cross-section of the world out there, as opposed to being a community of very peculiar people who bear very little resemblance to what's happening in society at large. Let me share with you the results of some research I've been doing since the last time, and then I want to go on and think about what the Bible might say that helps us in a changing uh, cultural situation. First of all, some facts about living aloners, if you'll forgive the term. Some statistics will refer to separated, divorced, widowed people, as well as those who are unmarried. According to the Joint Institute for Public Policy Research and Unilever report of 2005, um, 30% of all households in the UK uh, are people who live alone. By 2021, it's anticipated that that will rise to 35% of all households in the United Kingdom. The greatest increase in living aloners is in men. There are three times, as many men, three times as many men are now living alone as in 1971, and that's for a variety of different reasons. Studies show that men generally find it harder and are less likely than women to say that they choose to live alone. Men actually are more likely to feel lonely than women who are living alone. Apparently, 56% of men surveyed, as opposed to 48% of women, made that comment. <coughs> living alone doesn't always mean that wider relationships are sacrificed, and that is particularly true of women. A third of those living alone see parents two or three times a week, and a third think that living alone has a positive effect on relationships with their family. I'm not sure that that's the same third, but anyway. Over 10% of 20 to 44 year olds, 25 to 44 year olds now live alone in the United King- Kingdom, compared with a figure of 2% in 1973. So the situation is changing rapidly. <clears throat> Living alone isn't a class issue. It affects middle classes and working classes equally in terms of life experience although the truth is living alone is much harder economically for uh, a working class person especially working class males people aged 85 and older are now the fastest rising age group in the United Kingdom it's estimated that there are 1.1 million people 85 or over The proportion of 85-year-olds living in communal establishments has and is falling. 46% of men over 85 and 69% of women over 85 now live alone. The growth of people living alone in our society is having a profound effect on society in a number of ways. It's having a profound effect in economic terms. Social inequality increases as those with better incomes are better able to cope with living alone than those who are unemployed or on low incomes. In this category of people, like so many others in society, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. It has implications in regard to health as well. 23% of people under pension age living alone have limited long-term illnesses. Men living alone are more likely to suffer from illnesses as they get older than women. Another area where this has an impact is in the area of environment. People living alone, and a lot of this is quite logical when you think about it, are the biggest consumers of energy, land, and household goods. This is not to make you feel guilty if you live alone, this is just a fact Living aloneers consume 38% more products, 42% more packaging, 55% more electricity, and overall 61% more fuel per head than people who live with others. Households of four people or more produce 1,000 kg of waste annually. Those li- uh, per person, those living alone, produce 1,600 kg of waste. Annually. In other words, the carbon footprint, amongst other things, of living aloneers is greater. You have big feet. The rise in one person households is expected to account for 70% of annual house building growth between 2003 and 2026. That's why many people are still very confident that despite the price rising, the housing market still has a strong future. Besides the social, economic, health and environmental aspects, living alone is viewed in different ways by different people. Um, Statistics show that 54% of those living alone agreed that it was good to live on your own before settling down. More young women than men enjoy living alone for a period of time. Indeed, living alone for a period of life is now referred to as one of the new rites of passage for young women. But 51% of those who live alone um, see it as only a temporary stage in life and do expect to find partners. 77% of them say that the most likely reason they would stop living alone is because they would have found a life partner. Commentators highlight various aspects, challenges, and some difficulties of this whole business of living alone. Here are some of the issues that they highlight. They highlight the issue of identity. The difficulty of knowing who you are is not simply a matter of genetics. We are not simply the product of DNA. We are shaped by relationships and by context. And where relationships, especially close and affirming relationships, are missing it's harder to have a sense of who you are, a sense of self for some people. It's argued that a lack of social contact can breed destructive self-obsession and even depression amongst those who live alone long term. It's also argued that a lack of intimate interaction can allow people to develop very strongly held distorted views of the world and other people mind you in my experience you don't have to live alone to do that but the point is made that living alone can engender inflexibility of attitude and opinions because there isn't someone close up to you to challenge you in a very straightforward kind of way one commentator put it this way part of life is that the more inflexible you get the more frightening you become to other people and if they too live alone the more frightening other people become to you which potentially sets up a rather nasty, vicious cycle. And that comes from a commentator who has lived alone on and off for many, many years. Living alone and the absence of close proximity of another human being can hugely, obviously, increase a sense of isolation in life in general. Even the absence of conflict in a close relationship may be a great loss. It may mean that people don't have the opportunity to develop the same skills of negotiation and compromise. I don't know what the statistics are, but it's argued that there seems to be a greater tendency of those who live alone to communicate more by electronic methods, thus further increasing their sense of isolation. So there are many issues. One commentator remarked, solitary confinement is a punishment, indeed a torture, over long periods, for a very good reason. The last time we were talking about this, I made the comment that it seems that for those who are single, there are three broad and sometimes overlapping categories. There are those who are very content with their singleness, those who are very discontent with their singleness, and those who are managing their singleness, and sort of move in between those. I also said that there seems to be virtually no difference in the experience of men and women in regard to singleness. But obviously the statistics from research proved me wrong on that front. Men cope less well than women on the whole when it comes to singleness or living alone. However, I think it's still true to say that the sense of pain or less commonly indifference can be just as great in men as in women And everybody's circumstances are different. People have different personalities, different available family networks, different social structures. And that means that the experience of living alone varies from person to person. The thing that strikes me about this is that all the social policy research indicates strongly that something very new is happening in our society and in our generation, for which there is very little historical precedent in societies. This has not been the norm, and there seems to be little historical parallel. That almost one-third of households in the United Kingdom comprise of people who live alone, And that over the next 20 years that number will grow suggests that there's not just economic, health and environmental issues to be considered, but there are also spiritual issues to be considered. I did some research on Windsor. We have on the database that I was using 410 names of people associated with Windsor in one way or another. I counted 105 single or home alone people. I'm obviously mixing the two categories together here deliberately. Not all single people at the minute live alone. That represents 25% of the names on the database. If you take children out of the equation and deal only with adults, the figure changes quite dramatically. I counted 97 children on the database, so it's 105 out of 310. So we're talking about a third of the adult population connected with this church is single or living alone. And that doesn't count students, of whom we have and will have an increasing number. That's why I began by saying, what we are is actually a fair representation of what is out there. And the issues that society faces, we as a church face. And the policy issues that need to be thought through in broader society about this kind of thing are issues that we need to think about in relation to what it means to function as church. If married people are ever tempted to think that singleness is just something that's mildly funny, or that people should just get out there and get someone, I'd strongly advise them to engage their brains before they say anything. Because these statistics and the continuing trend in society means that you can expect that up to a third of your children will be single and may remain so. That's the issue you have to deal with. It's possible that up to one third of the children you saw going out to junior church will not marry by the time they are at the age for marriage. They're your kids. They're part of this church. How do you feel about that? Let me ask the marriage. given that your children are more than likely to be single than the single people you know in Windsor, and statistically that is the case, how would you like them to be treated and viewed by this church when they're in their 20s, their 30s, or their 40s and beyond? Whatever the answer to that question is, it should give us a clear indication of what your attitude should be to the single people sitting here this morning. Now, I have to say, there seem to be very few models of which I'm aware from which Windsor as a church can draw on this matter. I think it's something that churches haven't really got to grips with. And because many, though not all, churches are quite out of touch or step with the nature of society, it isn't an issue that many churches actually face. However, it is and it's going to continue to be one of the biggest challenges that this church will face over the next 20 years. So one of the big challenges is not just thinking about what's going on in the community out there, but thinking about how we relate to who we are as we reflect the community out there. So what does the Bible have to say that might help us think about this? The one thing is sure, the Bible won't tell us what to do. And precisely because the nature of what we're talking about is really quite different, and with very little historical precedent, You needn't go running to the Bible to find out how society was ordered there and dealt with this problem. It was ordered very, very differently. But I think there are things that we can look at and principles that can be set out which will help us as we think about this in the longer term. So I want to offer a couple of passages to think about. Some are more just stories or aspects of what we read in the Bible. And there are two basic passages I want to leave with you at the end. I want to talk, first of all, just about the extended family and the structure of extended family in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What kind of models do we have of this? Well, wherever you go in the Old Testament, the basic assumption, and I think largely with the New Testament, the basic assumption is that people functioned and operated in families and extended families. We're very much more used to talking about family and talking about the nuclear family, mum, dad, and whatever it is, number of kids. That's a rather contemporary model of family. The older traditional model of family is an extended model, and it's still the case in very many parts of the world and very many cultures of the world today. It tends to be the more Western um, societies that have moved away from that. And throughout the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, you find that people are enveloped in the extended family. I think of the story, for example, of Ruth and Naomi. It would be hard to think of people whose situation was more profoundly affected um, by death and widowhood than Ruth and Naomi. If you're familiar with the story, Naomi and her husband had left the area... Uh, of Judah had travelled to Moab because of famine while they were in Moab their two sons married women from Moab so this was a kind of uh, Israelite Moabite marriage, mixed marriage the husband and the two sons die which leaves Naomi and her two daughters-in-law as widows in Moab and this creates in its culture all kinds of conflicts and challenges for them Naomi decides eventually to return to her home And she encourages the two girls to stay back in Moab, their own place, because they have a much better chance of being married again. There's no social services, no social security. They could potentially simply become outcasts. Life could become incredibly difficult for them in that particular culture. And what happens is that Ruth uh, stays with Naomi and goes with her as a Moabite, going back to the Israelite community. All of this has in its context lots and lots of issues and pressures. Issues of shame, of being the foreigner, of being destitute, of not having a societal structure to support people in this context. And Naomi is going back knowing that what she needs and what she's dependent upon is someone within the wider family context picking up on her need and helping out in that particular situation. And that is ultimately what happens. Boaz, who is a near relative, is in a position to redeem back the land that she and her husband had sold when they went to travel to Moab. Which was all part of the regulations there. And what he does is he marries Ruth. Ruth's landed. a Moabite girl, a widow. She takes a chance. She travels from Moab back to Israel. She finds a husband, a wealthy one, one that's really keen on her. She's absolutely landed. She's set up. But what about the old woman? What about Naomi? She's no land. and now belongs to Boaz. She has no rights. She's now part of Boaz's household. What does he do? One mouth too many to feed or to be bothered about? Well, of course not. In the context of the story, it is Naomi who is honoured in the community. It is she who is given pride of place, both in Boaz's home and in the community, as a woman who is to be respected and to be accepted. And you see lots of illustrations of this. And as we look at the whole idea of the over-85s, the fastest growing section of the population in the United Kingdom. Um, What was it? 46% of those men, 68% of those women living alone. It raises questions for us as a church about the fact that we already have a small community of people in that generation who are living alone, but we're going to have a bigger one. A lot of you people who are sitting here will last well into your 80s. You'll have been well fed, well medicated, and all the rest of it. And some of you will end up living on your own in your 80s. How will the church relate to you and how will you relate to the church? And what will it mean for us to think about being a church community or a church family for for that generation of people? Well, there are models there of inclusion and of honoring, which are things for us to think about. There are things for us within our families to think about as some of the older members of our own biological families get older and older. On Sunday nights we've been following through the story of David and we've been watching the shenanigans that have been going on in David's family. The rather disastrous story of David's life and how it shapes up or doesn't following the incident of his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband. And in the midst of that there are other difficult situations and scenarios that arise including the fact that Amnon, the firstborn son of David, Uh, rapes his half-sister Tamar and um, Amnon's half-brother Absalom, they're all half-brothers and sisters, he has an awful lot of wives then takes Tamar who is essentially now again in the culture is essentially now an outcast she's on the scrap heap Um, what good is she going to be to anybody at this stage and Amnon has decided in the hatred of himself and his own actions that he hates her and has rejected her. And what happens in that context is that Absalom opens his home to her. Indeed, Absalom names his daughter after her. And we have a situation there where someone who was isolated was culturally uh, bound to be single for the rest of her life, whether she liked it or not, was incorporated uh, by her brother into the family and into the home and (laughs) honoured So there are all kinds of models throughout the Old Testament of how people coped with this. It was a real issue. It wasn't something um, that didn't matter, that didn't occur. It did occur. But the, the way the families worked and the way the community worked was to seek to incorporate people and not simply leave them out there. One of the great challenges we face as Christians is that having contributed to the establishment and the support of the concept of social services and having so many of us involved in the delivery of social services, is that as Christians we continue as individuals and a community to hand the responsibility for caring for those who become isolated, for whatever reason, to the social services. It's not really our problem. I think as churches, as the nature of community changes over the years that lie ahead, we will have to re-engage in this more. I have no idea what it will look like, or should look like, But I think, like the discussion with children and young people that um, Lynn has been talking about this morning, this is part of a discussion that needs to happen in church life generally. I think, too, of Anna, and I'm not suggesting this as a particular model, but I think of Anna in Luke chapter 2, tells us in verse 37 that day and night she spent her time in the temple praying and fasting. Some people think that what that means is that when it got really dark, Anna slipped off home and then came back the next morning and spent the next day praying and fasting. But plenty of other people think that given the scale of the compound, and you think temple, don't think church. Don't think of a building like this. You get completely the wrong concept. You're talking about a large complex. That Anna probably lived there. She probably had a room there. There's a vestry here if anybody needs it go in spare at the moment. She was part of the community in a very real sense. When people came to worship, she was there. They were providing for her. When people went away, she remained there and continued to pray and continued to fast on their behalf and on behalf of the nation. Now, there's something about the kind of incorporation there, and I know it's not a direct parallel because you're dealing with a whole community and its faith and religion as opposed to the nature of church as we experience it. But there's something in there about Anna. And she's there because she's there to greet Jesus. And many of our older people are the people who greet Jesus on our behalf in their prayer lives. So there's something we need to think about there in terms of church life. I think of Jesus and his community. Again, this isn't a particular Bible passage, but it's, a, it's an aspect of what the Bible tells us, which I think is useful to think about. I don't think I really understand the community that was with Jesus enough, even though I've been trying to think a bit about it. There are different levels of community around Jesus. There was his immediate family. Clearly his immediate family didn't fully understand him at times. I suspect that singleism was an issue. Um, Why doesn't he just get married like the rest of us? Is probably what some of his brothers were saying. swanning around the country. Causing problems. Annoying people. Getting a name for himself. Why doesn't he just settle down like the rest of us? His family did interact with him. I mean, we know, for example, that his brothers mocked him about not going to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Do you remember that passage? And they said, what are you not going down to the Passover as well, to Jerusalem? You're trying to make a name for yourself. And they all went off, and he followed down afterwards quietly. So there was a lot of interaction. And he clearly spent time with his family, and his mum came after him, burning the candle at both ends. You know, the usual mother thing. And she takes him away from this madness because she's arguing that he's out of his head. The Bible's very open about all of this. And clearly part of Jesus' community was his family, which must have been part and parcel of what shaped him as a person. And then there's that wider community of disciples. We assume that most of them, maybe not all of them, were married. And we know that their homes were open to Jesus. Peter and Andrew's home was open to Jesus because he goes there and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And besides that group, we know that there was a group of women who travelled with them and supported them. I'd love to know more about that group. Were they single people? Were they abandoned? Were they married? How did that work? How did these people actually become part of the community that travelled with Jesus from time to time and from place to place? So around Jesus is this community of people. There are 12 we identify uniquely as the disciples, but there were many more who both cared for and received care from this singleton, Jesus. I think one of the most obvious lessons is that there needs to be flexibility and openness among all of us in regard to our sharing our lives with others. Families need to be open to singles, not just potential babysitters. Singles who will benefit from having access to family life. And singles need to be able to relate to families without jealousy or resentment. There needs to be a sense of walking together on this road. The image I have is of a bunch of people walking along, a bit like the Mourn's Invasion, or the Saturday walk that sometimes happens at the church weekend. Um, If you imagine it, you've got this mixture of people, of children, of adults, of men and women of all ages, Anybody coming the other way when the Mourn's invasion from Windsor is taking place or the Saturday weekend walk is happening, anyone coming the other way couldn't possibly tell who belongs to who. Unless there's a lot of very close fellowship going on between one or two people, I don't know. It's probably obvious to them that it's a church group. But nothing else would actually be obvious. Because in the very nature of those kinds of walks, people move and they change. And the person you start walking with and talking to is probably not the person you'll end up talking to by the time the walk is over. And the children are constantly moving in between the adults. And for someone coming the other way, it would be impossible, virtually, to say that this belongs to that and that belongs to the other. And that's how. They're. What you see is a community of people moving. And that's exactly what was happening in Jesus' day. And I think that is an image, that is an idea, a concept, to be thinking about for us as a church together. That not just the walk once a year or twice a year, but that as we think about how church life should be shaped and the role of children's ministry within that and all the rest of it, thinking about that walk is a way of thinking about it because that's how Jesus operated. Because in my mind I see a similar group walking along the tracks of Palestine. It's hard to tell who's who and what their connections are. Jesus is in there somewhere. Men, women, and children all form part of the entourage and community. And they're discussing all kinds of things. They're discussing politics. They're discussing the kingdom of God. They're discussing the role of children. They're discussing the future. They're discussing personal matters and issues of, that they're struggling with, like forgiving their brothers. You can tell that there's some kind of religious group, but there's no special codes of dress or rank like you would have with an army or a formal parade. And all too often our concept of church is much more like an army, an institution, than a community who are walking together. And I think that's the kind of image that arises from the Bible that we need to have as we think about what it means to live together in a changing culture. We had agreed, thanks to the work of the children and youth group, that we needed to have more all-age events. We haven't quite got round to sorting that yet. But reflecting on this theme for this morning, and the cultural challenge that lies ahead for this church and many other churches, I would say that what the Children and Youth Strategy Group were saying is essential. Not just for the children's sake. But essential for the church. Besides these stories and images, there are two other things I want to leave with you. Two passages of scripture. Here's the first one it comes from galatians galatians chapter 6 verse 2 carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of christ if you look at the passage uh, in galatians chapter 6 um, you'll see why there's a bit of discussion about what this actually means galatians chapter 6 is on page 1172 of the copies of the bible that are in the pew And it begins by saying, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, for you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. And there's quite a bit of discussion about this for two reasons. One, the first is, is carrying each other's burdens (coughs) related to what verse 1 says, which is about helping one another when we're caught in sin? And is that simply the context? It's, in other words, helping one another with the burden of sin that we carry. So confessing our sin to each other and praying for each other. And one of the other issues is, is it not a bit contradictory? Because in verse 5 you have this very simple statement, each one should carry his own load. Is Paul a wee bit confused at this point as he's writing to the Galatians? It seems to me that what this is really saying in this passage is to be taken fairly well at face value. There are a range of issues that are being addressed in these few verses Um, at the end of Galatians. It's very typical of Paul to highlight a number of things very quickly near the end of a letter. All the things he would love to take time to expound on, but they've just run out of ink or papyrus or weeks in the year or whatever it is to actually get around to doing it all. So it's all bullet points. And that's essentially what these are. These are bullet points at the end of the letter. The things you need to think about, which we've probably talked about before with Paul and the churches in Galatia, or he'll talk about again at some other time. So the first one is to do with helping one another when we're caught in sin. The second one has to do with carrying each other's burdens. The third one has to do with how we think about ourselves. The fourth one about testing our own actions and watching for pride. And the fifth one is not dumping everything on everybody else. There's no contradiction in these, but they are all individual points which come together as part and parcel of the life of church. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If singleness is a burden, which for some it is, we should help each other carry that burden. We should be able to talk about it, to pray about it, to open our homes and to open our hearts. After the last session in November on this, one person came to talk to me about how they pray for single people who they know are looking for partners in life. And what's significant is they have been asked to pray this way by their single friends. And it was just fantastic to hear of someone here who has a relationship with people and it is that open that the single people they know have asked them to pray about partners for them. Fellowship groups might like to take up a discussion on this thing. Are you up to praying sincerely and sympathetically for the people in our groups who would rather not be single? And are you up for coping with the distinction between those who are content in their singleness and those who would rather be married. Perhaps opening up a discussion will allow single people to tell us what helping carry a sense of loss, if that is how it feels for them, actually is. Perhaps opening up a discussion will challenge those of us who are married about the quality of our lives compared to some very fulfilled single people. Are single people up for sharing among yourselves the way you feel about your circumstances? Are you ready to face the differences in how you see life and your circumstances? Certainly, there is an opportunity for us to heed the biblical command, to carry one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love on this subject as much as in any other. And the final piece of scripture I want to leave with you is the passage that comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. You might like to turn over to it. Peter, the rather impetuous disciple, who's always up there sticking his neck out, Peter, the preacher, the early chapters of Acts, becomes Peter the pastor. Um, Jesus has this whole thing with him, do you remember? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And he seems to go through phases from being the disciple who's out in front leading the pack, Um, To the disciple who's out in front preaching and seeing people converted. To the disciple who has a profound pastoral heart. And he's writing to Christians who are scattered around a region of southern Turkey. And he's giving them lots of practical advice. And he says in verse 7, which is on page 1220 of the Bibles of chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen one thing everyone can do marriage and singles is obey the instruction of scripture in 1 Peter 4.9 to offer hospitality to one another and to do so without grumbling note Peter doesn't put it down as a suggestion he doesn't put it down as a good idea he puts it down as an instruction and if there's going to be any accounting at the judgment this is going to be part of it Annoyingly, it doesn't spell out exactly what it means. I've heard preachers explain about how there were no inns or hotels in those days, certainly no reputable ones, and if Christians were travelling on business or in church business from one place to another, it was important that other Christians would open their homes for them. But now it's different. We have hotels and inns and bed and breakfasts, so let them go there and look after themselves. But just because we have hotels and bed and breakfasts and just because everyone has some roof over their heads, doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to us. I think it does. I think it stands as part and parcel of the distinctiveness of the Christian church or should do. Offering hospitality is closely linked to the concept in verse 10 that follows: using your gifts to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in all its various forms. It's not a gift. It doesn't talk about the gift of hospitality. It just says do it. So my encouragement to you would be to open your homes to each other. Set a few more places at your table from time to time and invite people to join you. Whether you're married or whether you're single is not actually the issue here. If you are married, if you want it to happen for your children when they grow up, and live alone then you need to model it now with the people around you if you're single you can offer hospitality as much to married people and families as single people and I know many people who do that and who do that very effectively and help build within the community of the church and beyond a sense of belonging and a sense of worth that is truly blessed So I want to leave these four things with you this morning to think about on this subject. I've left the statistic up there that single and home alone people connected with this church will almost certainly continue to figure to between 25 and 33% of the people associated with Windsor Baptist in the years to come. That's why this is an issue. And the kind of things we need to think about are the biblical models of extended family, of Jesus and his community, and two very simple passages of scripture which give us very clear direction. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. If I've got something wrong here this morning, you know me well enough to say so. And if there's anything, facts or implications that I need to put right publicly, fine. This isn't me showing off about what I know. It's about us exploring together what scripture has to say to us about important aspects of what it means to be human and live together in the church as human beings.